Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to Spartan Speak, a podcast from the Lansing State Journal and Detroit Free Press focused on Michigan State sports. I'm Phil Friend, your host, podcast producer, and sports writer for the LSJ, joined by free beat writer Chris Solari and LSJ sports columnist Graham Couch. Gentlemen, there is absolutely nothing going on in the world of college football right now, is there? Especially when it pertains to the Big Ten <laughs> and somehow the President of the United States. Yeah, well, well football games. Uh, there's actually some football games, too. That's true. That's true. There are games, and there's, I mean, it's one of those things where you, you think you might get a quiet week for a minute, sort of things have been said, things have been spoken. It doesn't look like there's going to be a development. And then a Tuesday happens and there's all sorts of sourcing and rumors and the president's talking to the commissioner and saying the big tens on the one yard line. And you've got the Dan Patrick show sourcing people that it's, you know, it's October 10th is the dream. And what's pretty clear here is there are a lot of people who would like to be playing October 10th. And the question is, you know, the, the um, what the powers that be will, will want eventually. And there's been no evidence to this point that the presidents, and they'll need, I think, what, six of them to swing their vote the other way, um, would to, to say that they want to, um, that they're ready to do that. And, and that's when it really, when you start getting presidential presidents and sources on presidents who are not Ohio State, Iowa, or Nebraska, and they are, you know, like even Purdue's president speaks up and there's a little bit of, you know, there seems to be a, not a door that's closed there entirely. When you start to get more of that, then, then talk to me. Yeah, I went back and kind of dug through a lot of the presidential quotes that we've seen from around the Big Ten uh, in a subscriber story that posted Wednesday. And, you know, it, it's pretty marked the the difference between some of those presidents. Um, I think the one situation where you might see uh, someone who could continue, who, who can consider flipping, uh, might be Penn State's Eric Barron, um, but he hasn't spoken publicly. That's all been coming through as athletic director. So again, you're talking about a filter there. That uh, it, it, as we've seen, you know, the, I think there was a reason that the Big Ten presidents kept the athletic directors and football coaches out of their meeting and decision to prevent this sort of strong arming and influencing from going on without just looking at the hard data. And, you know, certainly it's maybe even hard data is uh, not the right word because it's so tenuous and and fluid. Um, But, you know, the October 10th date to me is a complete pipe dream. Now there is one scenario where I could see that date being uh, a potential and that's the startup practice. Um, Because if you go back this summer and it's been a flood of news, the NCAA said they, they would need basically like a six-week run-up to get teams ready to play and compete. Well, if you extrapolate that out, that October 10th date out, six weeks, that's November 21st. And that's the Saturday before Thanksgiving. And that's kind of always been the earliest that we've heard anything uh, from, from sources that, that the Big Ten could consider trying to make an earlier comeback in 2020 rather than in 2021. But I think everybody's still pushing and pointing towards January. And, you know, it's, it, it's crazy though. It it is really a crazy time right now with, with so many people and so many different factions talking and not talking. Yeah. I can't believe I'm surprised none of the other three power five conferences have, have really kind of considered, you know, backing off on them. They're starting here in, in mid to late September here. So it really seems like no matter what's happening, whether it's, uh, Alabama or South Carolina or, you know, whoever else is, you know, uh, Oklahoma State, I think, too, is in the mix there getting infections. You know, everyone's just kind of pushing forward. It would be interesting to see what happens as we get closer and closer to the beginning of those games. Yeah, uh, and, and, and what's going to be interesting, too, is for the Big Ten to, to do anything, there needs to be new information. They need to feel comfortable. I mean, they didn't explain themselves all that well, um, obviously, and they're taking a lot of heat for it with their decision to shut things down. And one of the things you heard a lot of 
was, and you've heard this from uh, public health officials, and this is okay, this part of it, the fear of the unknown. And, um, you know, I know there are a lot of people when they hear, you know, fear, you can't live in fear and you hear all this. Look, it, it, when, when public health scientists and officials, people have dedicated their life to protecting public health and studying it, fear the unknown, then that's okay to fear that. And it, it, it's okay to say that a little bit. So the, they'll have to have some sort of known that comes out of that. What wasn't known that you now feel okay about? And maybe the, I think the rapid testing uh, is going to be something that, that could give them, you know, and, and uh, Michigan State's president, Samuel Stanley, mentioned that. And, and I think that's one of the things that could give them, I don't want to say an out, but could help them uh, push towards thinking differently uh, if, if that's there for people. And, and because even no, be it November, be it January, whenever it is, uh, th th there's going to have to be something that's different. Yeah. And I mean, the other thing I think that, that is going to be weighing in on these decisions for, for the Southern schools that are trying to push forward, how many of these guys are going to opt out? I mean, you've seen it at LSU, uh, you know, as we start recording, uh, if you remember the name, Jamie Newman, it was the quarterback at Wake Forest. He transferred to Georgia. Well, he's opting out for, for COVID concerns as well. So, you know, as a lot of these programs get a little closer, a little closer towards that, kickoff date how many guys are going to continue to do that not just at the top end but but other guys you know we saw it at michigan state with with guys like marcel lewis and justin stevens younger guys that had some some health concerns that they were worried uh, might put them at risk so you know that uh, this is all going to be so fluid including the rosters including the games you, you saw uh, on wednesday that iowa state doubled back on, on their decision to have fans or at 25% capacity, now they're going to have no fans. So, I mean, and I do think if there's one thing about the Big Ten putting a, a line in the sand and saying we're not going to play, it's to, it, it was in some ways to eliminate that stress factor on these kids of stopping, starting, up and down, uh, the emotional roller coaster that they've really been on since March. Um, Again, whether or not that's still going to be the right thing from a physical standpoint involving uh, the, the decision not to play is, is one thing. But, but certainly these guys right now know that they're not starting the season on September 5th, which is this Saturday. I think there are fewer – like so there are some kids who have opted out, right? Some players have opted out. And we, we know the names and you, they do it publicly. And there are some who have been very public in their, their desire to play. And I, you know, I think the vast majority are somewhere in between that, right? They're, um, they are, uh, they want, um, they're not, they don't love this. They wouldn't mind if things, they didn't play this year. They're not in, as enthusiastic as they, they would be normally, but they're not going to act out. They, they don't either fear losing position or, or they just, that's just not in their nature or that. I, I think there is a, a number, you can sense a number of players and just from people I've talked to that, you know, there are a lot of guys who wouldn't mind this season not happening. And if, if that's the case in the Big Ten, then I, I'm guessing it's the case a lot of places. No, yeah. I completely agree with you. I mean, that's, you know, it, it, it's going to be interesting people watching from afar uh, kind of seeing this transpire and coaches' reactions and, and, you know, I think Yahoo did a survey of 30 coaches about what they have to do differently. And there's a lot. There's a lot in terms of minimizing the playbook, smaller planning for smaller numbers and rosters and everything else. Um, you know, it, it's going to be a challenge for these coaches that, that are trying to play. I was just going to say, kind of coming back to the, to the whole Big Ten thing, it should be on since we last recorded. Uh, we're recording on Wednesday afternoon by now. I think we've said, we've said Wednesday a couple times here, so I think everybody's kind of on the same page there. Uh, uh, ever since we last recorded, the Big Ten did announce the official vote, vote results between the presidents with the coming out as 11-3 to with Iowa and Nebraska voting to play the season in the fall as originally reported. And Ohio State also voted for it. I don't know. I wonder if the, from the Ohio State pro, uh, perspective if that changed, if they just changed their vote at some point between the original 12-2 to reporting and then made it 11-3. to so, so that has happened. And then we, you will mention the Donald Trump thing at the beginning of the telecast, I, or at the beginning of the podcast, excuse me. I think... I mean, not to get too political on here, but it certainly seems like not a coincidence that he's targeting Big Ten country with his tweets and not the Pac-12, who is also not playing this fall. 
No, I, you know, there's no question to me that the the the, the political winds, you know, are 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 look. This this has been a this is a polarized country in an election year, and this is a uh, somehow we've wound up politicizing coronavirus, and, and that's that stinks. And uh, but there's no question that um, you know that <laughs> the president has. Um, has reasons to want people in Michigan and Ohio and Wisconsin and places like Pennsylvania uh, to like him and to sound like he is pushing for what they want. Uh, and and certainly if, if there are voters who are, you know, on the fence on things, I would hope that would not be something that would swing somebody. If you're swung by whatever you think about all everything going on by the president, that tweet, that comment, um, then that's, that's a pretty uh, flimsy line that, that that's, pushing you one way or another. I think one of the things that, that, that I, I find frustrating and, and um, is we hear from a lot of people about the idea that, you know, that, that they really want what's best for the student athlete and, and the fans and, and social media. And to me, and, and if the re if, if you're coming from an angle that you just want college football um, because you like college football, it's, it's hard to listen to that argument. And it, because if, if you're really concerned about the student athlete and kids of that age and the opportunities and career growth, then you should be able to go back and find this similar concerns about minor league baseball players in June and May. And it's really not. I mean, a lot of people, they want their sports and I get that. We all do. And I think one of the things that's, you know, Chris, we hear this all the time that because a lot of this has been the bearer of bad news or the bearer of reasonable thought or whatever you want to call it that we don't want a football season and we don't want to be covering sports. And uh, I mean, I'll, I'll be frank. I, I wasn't excited about covering a COVID season that stops and starts where every week it's not as fun to cover something via zoom or press conferences. It's a harder thing to cover, but I mean, I, I love college football and, and I really love college hoops. And these have been staples of my life as long as I can remember. I mean, the ridiculous things I've worn and done in the backyard, pretending to be people when I was six years old. I mean, it, you know, this, this is not like a part of my life that I want to see go away. And I don't think that is for any, um, any writer. And for a lot of people, it's, it's their real livelihood concerns. And, uh, but I also understand why sometimes it just feels like there's, I don't want to say a celebration of bad news, but you know, people jump on that, you know, everything seems like bad news and it seems like that's all people providing. And because we, we live in our own bubbles and everybody has their own slants on this and somehow there are two sides to covid which is ridiculous um i understand why people see it that way too yeah and you know it's this is i wrote about this this summer is uh 25 years ago was the first i covered michigan state football uh on the beat in college and i've been covering football since my senior year in high school for my local paper in 1992 I mean, this is part of my life. This is part of your life. This is part of our jobs, the things that, that drew us into this profession in the first place. Um, you know, the competition, the, the personalities, the, the, the game itself, the, the, the intrinsic beauty and ugliness that can come along with sports. I mean, it's, you know, there's so many things. I, you know, it's funny. I was watching some reactions the other night uh, from Michigan, Michigan State in 2015 in that that sheer joy of unexpectedness um, and sheer sadness of, of letdown. I mean, all these things that are, that are such a, a part of the human condition that are, that are you know, that, that really sports is uh, a, such a great escape from all these things in, in normal everyday life that, yeah, I mean, it is tough. It's tough to see that. It's, it's tough to, to see these kids going through that and stuff to see these coaches whose livelihoods go through that. And, you know, and it's, it, it's so much different, but at the same point, you know, we get, we get piled on because we're kind of a conduit from the medical community. I mean, the, the, the sources of the medical community who've been gracious enough to give us their wisdom and, and insight. Um, and you see it in a lot of different ways. I mean, there's not great news. And a lot of reason there's not great news is because there's a lot of research that needs to go on. And that's, that's the nature of science. And that doesn't coexist with sports. Uh, you know, the, the, the re nature of research doesn't really jive with, with sports where you have a definitive outcome, where you have a fumble that can, that even though the game's almost over and seems like it's over, it goes the other way. 
science is a lot more fluid than that. There's no 60 minute clock to tell you it's over. You know, it's a constant evolving thing. And I think that's really the hard thing that, that people are, are, are dealing with in their everyday lives, but particularly with the sports life, you know, why, why is the baseball playing through this? Why is the NBA and NHL playing through this in the NFL and why not college sports? Um, why, why not, why are high school sports doing it? I mean, there's, there's so many different questions that, that everybody else has that we have that, you know, it's hard. It, it's a hard situation to, to kind of digest and, and really transmit to people. Um, probably not the right word during the middle of an epidemic, but um, you know, it's, 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 it hasn't been a lot of good news, but you know, hopefully we continue to keep turning the corner medically and, and they can get back on the field in January or whenever they do. Something we really haven't talked about yet, guys, is Kevin Warren. I know he has taken a brunt of the criticism from from all angles. And is do you guys feel like he has just handled everything poorly from day one? And then even when he's had a chance to, you know, kind of rectify things, and even when he's come out with explanations and the announcement of the vote, is is it is it just a lost cost for him at this point in terms of getting the right messaging out, or uh, what can he do to kind of? you know, at least get enough people on the same page where he's just not receiving criticism from everybody, even writers, you know, and obviously fans, of course, you know, day in and day out. So I, I, I'm a little bit sympathetic and then not sympathetic because it ultimately, this is a presidential decision. It's not a Kevin Warren decision. And if, you know, if, if the president's wanted, it happens If they don't, it doesn't. Um, and I don't think the presidents have been that good. And I, I wrote about this for one column, just on the idea that these really ought to, this whole process should have been like a freaking school board meeting. Like this is way too important from a public health standpoint. Forget football for a minute. If you've got information that deals with exertion and concerns of anything like that, then any random 40 year old guy who might go out for a jog ought to know that every teacher ought to know that every parent ought to know that. I mean, these, these are not, we shouldn't be hiding this. this isn't a game, you know, defensive game plan for Penn State or something like that, right? So I've been frustrated across the board. With Kevin Warren, I mean, it started with that interview with Dave Rebson on uh, Big Ten Network. Because Rebson, even though that's an internal sort of, it's not really, a, you know, it's an internal arm of the Big Ten in some ways. I actually, I think, pressed him somewhat and had a pretty good interview. And he just didn't offer anything. And there's just no reason for that. I, I don't understand why the why the information hasn't been, and I'm just one of those people who has very low toleration for poor communication, and so and I don't understand it, um, because when I see it in jobs where people make a ton of money, I can point you to 15 friends who ought to have that job. Like I, I mean, Kevin Warren probably does a lot of good things, but based on his performance recently, I got 15 friends I know personally who could handle this part of it better because it's about communication and relationships and understanding how to take something and communicate to the public. And, and that drives me absolutely insane. So I think he's done a miserable job at that. I don't have enough information because he hasn't been all that available. Um, and we haven't heard, you know, I, I don't know what's going on behind the scenes. He might be terrific and he might be a terrific guy and a, and a good leader in a lot, a lot of ways. Um, but this has not been great. And, um, you can't hide from this stuff. This isn't, you know, I, I just don't, I don't yeah. this isn't closed practice. I, I put a lot of the blame on the Big Ten office itself, not on, not so much on Kevin Warren. I mean, you know, he's kind of caught in the middle between the athletic powers that be that are, that are speaking up. And, you know, again, mind you, it's the guy that took over January 1st. Yeah. Um, so it, it's not like he's got a wealth of experience. It's not like he came from another conference. Um, and had to deal with the media in a lot of these ways. I mean, he came from the NFL, and he was more of a behind-the-scenes guy. Um, you know, the conference, I, I don't think, has done him any favors from the coaching and athletic department standpoint um, in airing their rift with the presidents, the presidents, uh, some of the presidents not going out and giving any type of interviews or, or their rationale behind the vote, um, the Big Ten office itself saying there wasn't a vote and then basically, oh yeah, by the way, there was actually a vote, um, essentially lying to members of the media about that, um, or at least, uh, misconstruing the fact, um, there's, I mean, and that puts, that puts a leader in a tough position, you know, but ultimately the leaders in charge of them. Um, but again, it's a guy that's from January 1st, but you're right with the big 10 network. 
interview. There wasn't much of a plan. There wasn't much specificity there. Um, I don't know if that was his reasoning, or I don't know if that was the president's rationale, uh, but what really made the Big Ten look terrible um, across the board, presidents, chancellors, uh, Kevin Warren, the rest of the administrators and, and media relations people in, in Chicago, is just how comprehensive the Pac-12 was with their plan and how transparent they were. They came out a day later and they had everything available to people to explain the decision, to explain why they weren't doing it, to, to give charts and graphs. I mean, it, the, that, but, the Big Ten know, didn't have that plan. Here's the thing, let me push back on you a little bit, Chris, here. And, and that's the one thing, like, so if, if the Pac-12, though, the Pac-12 did have quite a bit. I'm not sure that would have satisfied people with cover, you know, around the Big Ten because, obviously, it's a different level of rabid fan base, right? And basically, if we have the information on the Pac-12 and that were to satisfy people, that should have shut down every league, right? I mean, that should be enough. Look what the Pac-12 has here. Look what they've learned. And, and so, I, you know, I, I do think that there is – there would have been there is going to be a side of things where people were just un, not satisfied because you, you look at look at what we've seen from coaches and athletic and, and athletic directors and just how fractured things have been in schools that are willing to speak out the other way. And some of it's politics and recruiting. Look, Ryan Day, I, I was hearing, you know, I remember when Ohio State was looking on the fence and I was hearing from people that Ryan Day can say whatever he wants and they can say whatever they want. But Ohio State's medical people, I felt a little differently. And if you're Ryan Day, you're trying to recruit and you're trying to recruit against a lot of schools in the SEC that are, um, that are playing. And so you, you're going to, you're going to take that side regardless, but even so you're just, you, there's there, I mean, the, the level of, of, of um, people thinking it's, it's, it's okay to source and share their opinions. And I mean, I mean, it's, it's unbelievable the different, um, you know, the, the factions that are coming out. And, and I just, I think they're all beneath the presidential level though. With the Ohio state situation, that's, that's really interesting to me um, for a lot of different reasons. Phil kind of brought it up, you know, what, what, did they change their vote from a uh, 12, two to 11 to three? Uh, was, was it really 11 to two at that point? And was the new president, Christina Johnson, not involved in the, the meeting when they held their, their first vote? Um, there's a lot of questions there that really, you know, again, not being answered because, uh, they're picking and choosing. Here's the thing. Kevin Warren hasn't spoken to anybody within the communities in the Big Ten. That's a problem. That's a big problem. You can speak all you want on a national pulpit, but these are, this is a decision that impacts the 14 communities that house these Big Ten schools, the businesses, the fans, the students, the athletes. Um, a lot of questions still remain to be answered there. But, but you know, Ohio State, um, you know, th there was a story in the New York Times uh, I believe it was uh, in late August uh, that they, their director of sports cardiology w was doing a study and, and found more myocarditis in, in athletes. Um, and it says, you know, the New York Times story said the survey found myocarditis in 15% of athletes who had the virus who experienced no or mild symptoms. I mean, so that's, you know, you got to wonder, I mean, was that athletics pushing an issue uh, to a new president um, and overriding the medical concern. I mean, there are so many questions that, that remain unanswered within the Big Ten from a school-by-school -school basis and from a conference basis that, you know, th these leaders need to lead and answer. Yeah, the Ohio State paradox is just such a weird thing. I mean, they, you, you can take it all the way back to when Jim Trestle was still there and he got in trouble, and then the Ohio State president made the comments that, you know, I have to do, I'm paraphrasing, he basically said, Jim Trussell is my boss, and I kind of have to do do what he wants. So I do kind of wonder regarding the Kevin Warren comments, if he just felt like he didn't have to fully explain everything because he thought the other Power Five conferences would eventually follow in line and everyone would sort of understand. That might be that might be too simplistic, but there is a part of me that thinks he just thought everybody else would fall in line and, uh, yeah, he wouldn't have to explain himself all that much, like unlike the Pac-10 or Pac-12, excuse me. Yeah, I, I, I do think the Big Ten might have thought more people were going to come with them. The, the problem with the Big Ten uh, is the timeline they set for themselves. So once you get the SEC schedule and the idea that they're going to start in late September, the SEC still, the SEC still not, may not play football. I think they will. I think that's where they're headed. But they gave themselves the benefit of time a little bit to see what happens when kids got on campus. 
to see what happened with the NFL. You remember baseball at that time was, was having some real issues with the Marlins and Cardinals. And, you know, they, they gave themselves the benefit of time a little bit. Um, and the Big Ten didn't do that with the September 5th start, even if they built in weeks later on. And, and I think that was, you know, having the release of the schedule and six days later, I mean, they, they kind of, they put themselves in a spot. So he may have thought people were going to follow, but the other leagues had, had set themselves up not to have to make a decision right away. And so it would have been, if the other leagues also got the benefit of seeing the backlash against the Big Ten well before they had to make a decision. And, um, and, and the thing that we're all realizing is usually what changes decisions is political pressure. Absolutely. And what the political, this is so politicized and polarized that the politics in the regions where they are still playing is a political pressure to keep playing. And this is something where you can find medical reports that people think it's okay to play and, and all that stuff. So you can find, and I'm not saying the SEC and ACC and Big 12 aren't, aren't, don't have legitimate doctors who are telling them and they're not trusting them. I will say when Texas Tech keeps practicing through 21 cases, because uh, by any health officer's estimation, that positivity rate on your roster is a little high, um, that, that, is, that is probably irresponsible. When you see Iowa State, which is reverse course now, go from offering, you know, allowing 25,000 fans in their opener in a state that's the largest outbreak in the country right now, and they only have a 60,000-seat stadium, I think it is. That, that is, you know, you, you do see some decisions some places where um, it doesn't make any sense. But a lot of it is a lot of it is, is politics, and this has been politicized early. And we're in this boat largely because of politics early. And, and this isn't a political po- podcast, but if at the very top, if, if it, once it was decided and discovered, and as we learn more about the virus, the mask thing um, became important in, in terms of not spreading it. And that was realized it was much more in the air than, 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 than you know, what you touch and all that sort of stuff. If, if right away leadership at the top had said, we got to nip this in the bud, we got to have schools back, we want to have sports, we want to have our lives back in the fall, wear a mask, socially distance, let's, let's do this hard for a little bit, we wouldn't be in this situation. So to come out now and say, you know, we, we ought to be playing is, is, you know, we all know is, or at least 57% of the country probably knows is uh, – is a little bit hypocritical. Let's be real about this. It's, it's all amplified politically right now because it's an election year. I think that's that's another thing that really needs to be taken into account with with why things are pinballing and, and ping ponging back and forth so much with this. Is it's you know this is this is an election year, a very divisive election year on both sides, um, and, and I think that you know you see everybody trying to seize on talking points, both sides. I mean, it's you know that's that's the reality of, of, of politics creeping into sports. And, you know, that's, you know, it's interesting to see um, that there's a certain contingent of people who love the, to tell us to stick to sports, but aren't telling the politicians to stick to politics. And so there's certainly, um, you know, there's a lot of fever, a lot of emotion between the, the politicians trying to win votes, the coaches trying to win recruits, um, you know, all these things, let's face it, we could say, you could be naive to say that there's not politics in sports because that's essentially what recruiting is. Recruiting is politicking for your program. Yeah, circling back on the Iowa thing you talked about, Graham, uh, the University of Iowa, they had to, I believe they suspended all practices after 99, I believe the number was 99, 99 athletes tested positive for COVID-19 and the entire over throughout the entire school, it's over a thousand cases now over the past couple of days. So, you know, this was a school that was very vocal about playing in the fall. And I think one of the reasons we surmised that was because, well, Iowa, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of farmland there. And, you know, we thought that maybe COVID-19 and coronavirus hadn't really got there, you know, as big as in other cities like, you know, Lansing or Detroit, for example. And obviously that now that has kind of come to roost a little bit, at least in Iowa anyway. Yeah. Well, the students came back in Ames and Iowa city and, and, um, yeah, it was always going to hit there later. And, um, you know, it, uh, I, I don't, you know, I, I'm curious where all this goes once we've been in school for three weeks. Um, and um, I'm curious where, where this will be once, you know, you start getting position groups that are quarantined. Um, but I, I'll be honest, if, if I have to bet one way or another, I, I think they are 
playing starting the season in the SEC, ACC, and uh, and Big Twelve. Yeah, I th- I think that's where we're at at this point as well. You know, something that in, in talking to to MSU's president Sam Stanley, I think that really jumps out at me uh, in talking about the students coming back to campus and you know programs shutting down and everything else is you know here's a guy who I think quite rightly the Big Ten is relying on because he's an infectious disease expert and. Um, one of the things he said was, and I asked him this, I said on a, on a call a couple of weeks ago, I said, how safe or unsafe is football right now? He said, we'd love to see the data. Well, that's the reality that there hasn't been a football season in the middle of this, this disease since it, since the virus, uh, which is a novel virus and they're trying to study on in real time. Um, that, so to me, and I've used this term in a lot of ways, you know, these athletes become Guinea pigs right now for these studies. You know, what happens, you know, how, you know, and I, I think that comes down to what are the conferences risking? What 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 are they willing to risk? What are the athletes willing to risk? It's, you know, it, it it it's unlike concussions. It's unlike you know broken bones or anything else that that athletes deal with, because that affects you individually. Whereas this virus affects the community. And one of the things in talking to to disease experts is the community spread is the concern. Maybe not so much are these guys going to pass it back and forth on the field, though there is even Stanley admitted that, you know, having those offensive and defensive linemen really close together, uh, there's a risk of transmissibility there. But, um, you know, how much can you keep them from the community at large? How much can you keep them from their families? Um, about Matt Allen brought up a great point. Guys who were on Michigan State's team who were uh, not wanting to play this year, want to be able to see their family. They don't want to feel like they're putting them in harm's way. And, you know, it's a two-way street as well, because now if you do go see your family and they have something, well, then you risk bringing it back to your team and infecting them. So, you know, it's different risk situation than anything that football, even as risky as football is in itself, uh, that, that goes beyond the field factor. Yeah, and there are lots. I mean, there are, there is the unknown, and you're you're trying to protect athletes who may you know who want you to protect them. Although you know, you could argue from a, uh, a data standpoint that the transfer rule, uh, the data is pretty clear at this point that kids who transfer uh, don't usually wind up in better situations. So what's what's technically one of their rights uh, might be like not right for them generally. And, and we're going to get to the one time transfer at some point. And so, but I understand health and that's a little different, but th- what, what I think is, um, what I think is interesting is these kids are still on campus. They're still working out. And yes, they may be in smaller groups and they don't have the piles of playing football. But if you do get to rapid testing where you can test both teams the day before a game and have quick results or however you do that day of a game, and, you know, at, at that point, there's no real extra risk between the two teams. Uh, you're going to have a, a hard time saying that it's okay for them to, to play and, and not um, or, uh, practice and be on campus and not play games. You could, there are lots of other arguments for it, though. I would have been okay with this. And this is what's weird about the timing, too. Like at Michigan State, they don't feel it's okay. They, they don't have students on campus. They basically, everybody they could possibly send home, they did. The classes are online. Now, there are kids off campus, and there are some in the dorms. And they, and they waited until after that tuition payment, you know, hit. And um, after they you know, said they were going to be there. And I think ethically that's uh, understood financially, but pretty pretty shameful. And, the and, and you know, there are lots of feelings I have on that and what the schools should have done. But you could argue if, 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 a, school, if a president said, look, we can't have students on campus we're not playing sports like we, we there's a threshold we have to be able to meet if we can't reach that basic threshold of of, of in-person classes then wh- what are we talking about here it's college football and for all the financial implications just it just in terms of priority it doesn't make sense and that would have been one reasonable thing to say but that's not what we've heard and that's not what's been said and so i think part of the problem is they haven't given you know a, a, a real clear concise answer on what happened in the room where it happened, what they heard, when were they swayed? Did they ever think they might play? Because I don't think they did. I think the biggest mistake the Big Ten made, other than their um, than their uh, their uh, communication on this, was releasing the schedule. 
Uh, you know, no, they, my favorite. If they had never released the schedule, and they had said, uh, "We're going to," you know, it, 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 based on the time when they were going to vote and decide this, they didn't need to. Um, I, I think it, it would be a little different look as well. We we've talked about that before. False optimism. I think that's you know that's the inherent nature of, of sports is you know you're positive to to keep your players and everybody else positive, but but this isn't one of those situations where you you're in control of it. I think some coaches have, have kind of come to grips with that. I think Mel Tucker has come to grips with that and been pretty uh, eloquent in talking about it. And others continue like Jim Harbaugh uh, today, Wednesday uh, pushing, let's go, let's play right now. I mean, there's, you know, there's only so much you can do, but you know, my favorite, my favorite news of the week. Um, and this is, this, ex- this pretty much explains the duplicity that's going on here. Uh, the AFCA, the uh, American Football Coaches Association, uh, announced that their annual January meetings are going to now be held virtually because of COVID concerns. Well, these are the coaches who get paid the money and who go there to re- recruit new coaches and, and hobnob and all these other things. It's not safe for them to go and in, into a convention, but it is safe for their players to play on the field and be in the community. It, there's, there's a lot of mixed messages that, go, that are going on in a lot of different ways right now. Yeah, that's just not, that's not just cultural. It's just the, the world in general, it feels like mixed messages. It is. The theme it of the is. past seven months. So what, one of the things that's worth bringing up, though, is because is, is, is obviously a, a Michigan State contingent listening to this podcast. From a Michigan State football program perspective, I think not playing early this year right away is a total win. And I, I've heard that from people within the program, too. They, they, they did not get a proper run-up here. This was going to be they, – they needed this. This was, I think, going to be a tougher season. First of all, you don't have the non-conference games. You've got um, – you know, and you, you, you've got a lot of new parts all at once without getting the spring, without getting the, the real way of, of fall camp happens. I, a lot of things – that made this difficult. And, and if you, I don't think they're heartbroken about having more time to implement their things in terms of uh, off-season workouts, their structure, their plays, you know, figure things out. I, I don't think from an MSU football perspective that a delay is a bad deal for the, the, the beginning of the, the, the Mel Tucker era. Yeah, not to mention that 400 years ago, all the way back uh, your in, in February, um, they were, Michigan State was left in, in a in a bind after the coaches convention having to look for a coach you know i mean mark d'antonio's retirement timeline did not help and do michigan state football any favors i mean you know the february 4th retirement i mean to try and replace a coach at the power five level is there are very few instances you've heard or seen that uh for a retirement um and, and certainly put michigan state in a bad situation then a month onto the job mark, mark mike mel tucker um, has to shut down his football program four days before practices start. I mean, they didn't have an off-season weight conditioning program. The guys were scattered around the country at their houses lifting tires and whatever else, uh, buckets of bricks and whatever else they could find. Um, so, yeah, you're right. And, and the fact that they only got, what, maybe four or five days worth of actual on-field work after the being shut down for two weeks with a COVID outbreak within the program um, – you know, they were behind even getting to that September 5th date. So, uh, you know, from a football standpoint, you're right. I mean, it, it, this benefits Michigan State uh, without question. And, and I think even Mel Tucker is a bit of that. I think what we learned from all that was if you're going to put a retention bonus in somebody's contract, maybe not put it uh, in February. Or it was late January. But, yeah, it okay. certainly is. It, is um, it was right. You probably, what, put it in July <laughs> if, if you really want um, I mean, I, it, from a school perspective, I understand why you put it that late so that they're going to st- so, so they're not inclined to go. But in a situation where uh, D'Antonio was in, you certainly gave him no time to try to find a coach. Right. And, you know, in, in hindsight, I think, you know, they probably should have, uh, you know, really, really pressed him on that. And, and if he was um, going to go, said, we're going to give you the bonus anyway. The, the, the thing that's interesting about the timeline is I'm less, if this had been a normal year and we don't have it, I'm not as concerned about the timeline. It did put them under the gun and finding a, finding a staff and how quickly they were going to be able to 
but they were going to get a full spring practice with those guys and a full basic off season. Um, it was always going to be hard for us here just on the number of guys they lost and where you're replacing certain positions. Uh, but you know, in the way the recruiting calendar has changed now, where so many of the recruits are signed anyway by December, um, that you know, obviously, if you leave it Thanksgiving weekend and the coaching change happens, then he would have had a, a chance to shape a little of that recruiting class. But the way it is now, if, if D'Antonio had left right after the bowl game, Tucker was going to have very little influence anyway on the on the recruiting class this year, and so I don't know that it. Uh, it, it wasn't obviously the timing wasn't ideal. I don't know in a normal year if it would have been um, quite so crippling, though. Uh, speaking of Michigan State football, let's talk about Mel Tucker and his recruiting. Uh, in late August, he landed his first four star recruit in the 2021 class when he got a commitment from four star New Jersey offensive lineman Gino Vandemark out of uh, one of the New Jersey powerhouses. Chris, uh, how important was it for Tucker to? Finally, after receiving, uh, I think, 12 other commits, all of them three stars, to, to finally get that four-star guy. Yeah, I think that from a perception standpoint, that's big. Um, you know, I, I think, you know, in particular, that you're building it up front with a four-star guy. That's, you know, if you're able to get a four-star offensive defensive lineman, um, you know, that kind of emphasizes th- this idea that, that you want to be tough. You want to be able to run the ball. You want to be that, quote-unquote, relentless team. Uh, you know, Vandermark certainly fits the bill of potentially being a, a mammoth tackle in the interior or potentially being an outside tack or excuse me, a mammoth guard in the interior or a tackle on the outside. Um, you know, it, like he wants to be, um, they, they got Kevin Wigington from New Jersey. So they've been mining that area. Um, you know, there's definitely interest. And I, I, I think back to Mark D'Antonio's first couple classes and, you know, those, those early classes were, filled with guys that were off the radar and two-star guys, and, you know, three, some three-star guys. And, you know, the, the fact that Mel Tucker has been getting three-star guys speaks to where the level that this program has come. Um, but the fact that they still only have one four-star shows how much more needs to be done to, to try and sustain what D'Antonio built and, built and, and take it to the next step. Yeah, and uh, Vandermark's high school teammate, the running back, uh, hopefully I'm pronouncing right, Audric Esteme, uh, he is uh, rumored also to be heavily leaning toward Michigan State. So it would if he if they can secure that commitment too, that'd be kind of a nice four star teammate combo there for them. Uh, you were talking about Chris, you were talking about the offensive linemen and their size. The thing I've noticed, and I'm sure maybe you have too, if you looked at it, and the, the type of offensive lineman recruits that Tucker and his staff are going after. They're going after you know, bigger, uh, high 290s, 300, 310-pound guys, whereas I think D'Antonio's staff, at least, you know, in the later years, were going after 250, 260 guys that they kind of bulk up. It seems like they're trying to get that bulk there right away and then maybe trim them down or whatnot if they need to. Yeah, and I think that in talking to Matt Allen uh, last week, you know, they're really, really jazzed uh, and enthused, uh, the offensive linemen, uh, about working with Chris Kapilovich. And I think that you know, all these recruits are, are speaking to to his strength as a recruiter and, and ability to sell his vision of what he wants Michigan State's run game to be. And there's no doubt that they're going with bigger, faster, and stronger kind of guys. Um, you know, at least the bigger part. You know, the, the hope is that you can mold them into the faster and stronger guys when they get to campus. Um, but that's that's got to be the, the, the staple. I mean, you saw the last couple of years how badly the injuries up mm-hmm. front decimated what Michigan State was trying to do. I mean, they went 10-3 and three and didn't have any real changeover on the offensive line in the past two years. I think it was, you know, nine and eight different combinations of starting groups uh, over the, the 26 games. I mean, that's that's a lot. That's a lot. I mean, there's the lack of continuity the, the affects the running game and it affects the passing game and everything else, but but Kapilovich clearly is, is a guy that is out there and, and making some headway. And I think the whole staff is as well. I mean, I think they've been really creative on social media and they've done a lot of, of, of selling of the program. And I think Mel Tucker talked about that being, you know, when, when everything got shut down, they realized they have to be salesmen for their own program. And I, I think they've started to be able to do that. 
a beautiful segue, Chris. And speaking of social media, uh, yesterday Michigan State's uh, coaching staff, you know Mel Tucker, Michigan State football account, and you know the guy who who runs their a lot of their social media stuff. They sent out a graphic yesterday regarding the name, image, and likeness stuff, and really kind of pushing the idea on recruits that if they come to Michigan State. The uh, the NIL part can be a big component, and Michigan that Michigan State can provide a huge role in that. We haven't, I don't think we have seen too many schools kind of try to go that route at this point. Uh, what were your guys' kind of thoughts on that? Well, I'll say that I don't follow as many schools closely, so I don't like if North Carolina State was doing something similar, I, I would have no idea. Um, so I don't, I don't know that to be true. I do think it's smart though, from a branding standpoint, to put the emphasis Michigan State has on this. Um, it's, it's an important recruiting thing. I think in basketball, for example, and not everybody is going to be Imani Bates. Um, and so sometimes when all things are considered equal, are going to have advantages over others, some campuses, some conferences. But like Imani Bates is going to be perhaps, if he comes to Michigan State, the, the first superstar of the name, image, and likeness era and sort of what, you know, what he gets and what that means. I think it's going to be fascinating to watch because it'll affect decisions on when kids leave, depending on how much they can make. I think it's going to, there are going to be some real negatives in terms of locker rooms and in terms of kids figuring out what their market value is and that it's not that much and that the scholarship is really about what they're worth, you know, and that's going to be disheartening at times. Uh, there can be some splintered locker rooms. I do not think uh, college athletes will get as much done collectively moving forward once this starts, because this is a very individual thing. And once guys are in certain areas are able to take care of themselves. Um, the willingness to sacrifice for something that may be unpopular to a sponsor or some sort of situation, uh, I think will be harder for these guys. Uh, it's going to be, it's going to be very interesting to watch. Yeah. And it's going to be something that evolves over time. And especially with it being the wild West right up front, I thought Michigan state did a good job of getting out in front of it um, because they're speaking in a language that, that the kids they're trying to attract, no one understands. I mean, when, when one of your big things is promoting your brand in big letters directed right at kids uh, about their Twitter and Instagram accounts, um, kids know that. Kids, kids know that. I mean, every kid is doing their, their, their release of their top 15 or their top six and then making their commitment with heavily produced videos. Um, these kids are savvy. They understand this. They understand the effect that it has, they see the, the likes and they see the followers pop up and they know that there's a monetary value to that because their peers in, in some other areas are able to make money off that. But I think that there was other things too, that, that Tucker, they, they've done that uh, quietly up until uh, Tuesday. Um, and, and one of the things I think they was using the university's photographer to give these kids photos of themselves during practice, during games, uh, little video clips and stuff that they can push out there. Um, and and it, it's entertaining. It's engaging. It, it sells themselves and, and Michigan state saying, Hey, you know, we've already got these resources in house here, go ahead and run with it. And, you know, certainly that's, that's a, a change in strategy from a lot of the other things. I think you've seen more and more of that happening at Michigan state over the last couple of months since Mel Tucker took over and I think that long-term that's going to benefit them on top of all of this. Cause I mean, Tucker talked to, about this, you know, this is something that, that he does, you know, he's, he's one of those guys. I think someone asked him, you know, what Mel Tucker does. Um, one of the players last week, and they said, well, I, I imagine the first thing he does is, you know, plan out his day and figure out what social media posts he's going to post that. I mean, he, he's savvy. He gets it because that's how to sell your program right now. Yeah. I think one of the, we talked about this before we started recording, like, uh, we've seen some of the recruits uh, put post the social graphic that says my recruitment is officially shut down and with the Michigan State stuff all over. And I, I'm guessing, you know, the, the social media staff just sends that to everybody and they hope they hope they post. I get, I've never seen that from other schools doing that. And I just think that's so interesting. I don't know if it's good or bad or anything or I personally I think it's sort of weird but I mean it, it's a different approach and I think when you're Michigan State you're looking for a different approach and 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 maybe that works for for certain people it's bridging the generation gap is what it's doing between a 48 50 year old coach and 18 17 year old kids and frankly these adults to some degree uh, have had this opportunity I mean may not maybe not in social media the same way but they've had the opportunity to, to live in a world where you can market yourselves 
And some of them will have had experience with this. And um, what's going to be fascinating is once this becomes available, you know, when, when you see every, you know, every backup linebacker has got, you know, marketing the hell out of himself and everybody's going, well, so what, man? Like, I don't, you know, I, I, I think it's going to be fascinating to watch. And, and I, I hope that, um, you know I what I got to say to that? Here, here's what I got to say to that. Kyle, who would have told, if I would have told you at the beginning of the 2013 season that Kyler Ellsworth would have an autograph signing after the year and people would turn out and get his autograph, would you have believed it? Right, no. no you know, the, you know, I mean, and the same goes with guys like Jalen Watts-Jackson. I mean, right. You know, the, the, the one moment, that one shining moment can, in the college level, because of the platform, on national TV because of the, the amplification of these games and highlights clips and everything else over the years. Um, even a guy like that, like Kyler Ellsworth or Jalen Watts Jackson, while they're not going on to make millions of dollars in, in their professional careers, they still got a steady street stream of income for the rest of their lives off of one moment. That's yeah, amazing. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's really yeah. what it is. No. And, and they ought to be able to take advantage of it earlier than they, they do. And, and I'd be curious to see to what degree that income still exist because now they can of course um take advantage of it but it's yeah no what's going to be fascinating is in the locker room the resentment and the 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 feelings that go on and and, you know let's think about last year's michigan state running back situation and say you're the starting running back at the beginning of the year like a connor hayward and not only do you lose your starting job to a freshman but you lose a sponsorship deal or you lose, you know what I mean? Or you lose something that yeah. you lose the cachet that allows you to do certain things. I think that sort of stuff is going to get real weird, real, uh, you know, not ideal. I don't think any of this is ideal, um, but I think it's probably fair. And, and, and I would love to see, so I don't know. I don't know what, I don't want to, I don't want to go down this road because uh, it, it is, <laughs> it, 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 I don't want to philosophically go where I'm going on this because it's a whole different debate. Um, but I do think there, there are going to be some, some, some hearts broken. I, I think what, what players get overall and what many of them know is a great deal. I am about tired of folks in the media and anywhere acting like these are unpaid labor, scholarship is nothing. If you are a kid who could not get into college anywhere, it is not for your football ability, based on your scores and your grades, and you get to go to a, a good university have it entirely paid for, be pretty well treated while you're there in terms of tutoring and classes. And now, and granted, I think schools need to do more in terms of lifetime education and making sure these, if you're going to accept somebody who may not be ready for college, make sure they are developed even beyond college and they're still helped. But, um, and, and you're given, you know, if you're an out-of-state kid, the equivalent of like whatever $40,000 in tuition and, and now cost of attendance and, um, and you wouldn't be able to go to school anyway. It, it's, it's that, that, that is a, not a bad deal, um, for a lot of places and or for a lot of kids. And are there exceptions to it? Absolutely. But I, I think a lot of kids are going to, are going to learn that the hard way. Okay. Let's move on to Twitter questions here. I apologize in advance for the first question because we get this, I think <laughs> every time we ask for Twitter questions, but, uh, Rocky Labar did talk to the media last week. So I thought we would, I would go ahead and include it. This comes no, Bill. You did not put this question. In I there. did. This comes from Hamza. If we somehow end up getting Big Ten football this year, who do you guys foresee starting at QB? Considering there was no spring ball, does Rocky get the green light because he has some sort of game experience? You go first, Chris. <laughs> no, me go first. Um, you know, I, I think it's. I think here's okay. I'm going to go out on a limb and say yes, he does get the ball first. But I think it'll to me, and and this is all spitballing again because they've had practices in pads, shorts, and jerseys and not, or excuse me, in helmets and jerseys and shorts and not in pads. And they've rarely had any full team workouts yet to, to kind of build that timing. And I think he gets the, the first nod, but I think it could be a situation like if you remember back in that early 2013 season where guys just, you know, rotate in and out trying to figure out who works best. Um, I think you have to kind of go that and, and kind of ride a hot hand and, and go from there. Yeah. How's that? I'm actually taking a stance on that. Yeah, no, I appreciate you, Chris. (laughs) 
the uh, I, I would add to what Chris is saying. And I, I don't disagree that it's also if you if you've got a short run up and they've had it. This isn't what the, I mean. If, when people when we were asked this question originally, right, we thought there was going to be a spring practice in the summer and a regular uh, quarterback competition, and you haven't gotten a lot of that. So you've got one guy who's got substantially more experience, um, is an older guy, been in the locker room longer. You've certainly they put him out in front of people more, which is telling. I also think it's it's easier to go to the older guy first and then replace him than to do the other way around, and. Struggles, and so if this is a year where you 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 may have some struggles, you may go through some tough times. You, you, a guy who's been in Big Ten games, he's had things go wrong, he's had some moments. Um, whether he's the best, what you know, you may not have a clear picture whether he's truly the best quarterback, even if you're Michigan State's coaches at the beginning. Um, but he might be the right guy to start the season, and then how he does you and, and how other guys are looking, you you adjust from there. I think it's easier to go that way than to to um, uh, he's not the incumbent, but to bench the older guy, younger guy struggles, loses confidence. You go to the older guy who you, who you already, yeah. Then you've got a guy who's unhappy. I mean, just in terms of a happiness perspective and um, trying to keep confidence up and a younger guy gets, doesn't start the job with the job. He's not likely to just say, that's it. Whereas an older guy, you, you might lose entirely. Yeah. Uh, previously on this podcast, I've said that I thought Peyton Thorne, would be the starter for game one, but I am going to officially go on the record in reverse course and say I think it is Rocky Lombardi for all the reasons we've we've all talked about. And uh, you wanted Rocky Lombardi yeah. over uh, I mean the Lombardi. Lombardi. Lombardi over the worky. Yeah. I know I was yeah. uh, famous pod yeah. famous think, moments I of I think the other thing too is hey, everything's been so disjointed. At least you've got a guy who understands what it's like to prepare to be a starter on right. a game day. I think that's that's gotta be taken into account. And you know, physically he's held up. You know, you know, and he's he's taking the pounding. He's been in pressure situations. I mean, you know, and he, and, he, and and you know, to the point we were oh, talking yeah. about, he, he's failed and succeeded at the college level. I mean, he was a, a hero after that Purdue game, and he was pretty blunt about the fact that later on he didn't actually play that well, but Purdue's defense was so atrocious that I mean, he said that was like his worst game of the year, and it was the game he was hailed as a hero for. And then we've seen him struggle mightily in a game they really needed to win, you know, against Nebraska, um, and, and and at other times. And so he he's you know, he's got some tough, thicker skin too at this point. I think there are just a lot of reasons that would probably make sense. And 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 and, and while there's more time to evaluate these guys now, but if say they were playing January or November, I think unless you know, there, I, I, I think my answer would at least probably stick then. All right, David Zandi has two questions. I'm going to ask his second question first because I think this is what kind of what everybody wants to hear. Kirk Cousins' hot take on COVID. Would you, would love your thoughts. For I'll set the stage here. Uh, Kirk Cousins appeared on the 10 Questions with Kyle Brandt podcast. I think it was recorded earlier this summer, I believe, in July. And uh, he had some comments about the coronavirus. He said, uh, the quote, exact quote was, if I die, I die. And, you know, he kind of... Uh, it was just one line out of a pretty long comment he said, and he was talking about how he just, I mean, he did say he understood people. He would wear masks to support other people, but at the same time, his worry on a scale from like one to 10 was point zero 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 one. So it was a, 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 some, some weird comments from him. What are your guys' thoughts on that? Well, I think I, I'm, I'm going to keep mine short. I think that the fact that he, he did say that, that he respects other people's concerns and that he does wear a mask. I, I think that's the important takeaway here. Um, but at the same point, you know, not worrying about this. Um, and this, this is coming from a father of young children myself. So I'm taking this in, in, in a personal realm with this. I know he has young kids and I met them. Um, you know, I would hope that he tries his best um, to make sure that he keeps himself safe for them. Because again, this isn't about, Sometimes you, you know, I, that's, that, it's, I think it's, you know, that's clearly a sign of his faith that he believes that, you know, everything will have its way. And, you know, if he dies, he dies. It's this exact quote, you know, and there's obviously a lot of reasons for that. You know, he, he, he's a, a very, very outspoken uh, Christian. And I, I kind of get where he's coming from with that. Uh, but at the same point, you also have to take care of yourself to take care of your children, too. Yeah, I'm a little conflicted because there's a part of me that really thinks 
you know, it, you know, if, if for a lot of people, we're, we're obviously polarized and there's different opinions on this. And if everybody with a different opinion followed that example and just respected, even if by the off chance, the mass make a big difference was had the respect for their fellow mankind and did that, uh, we'd be in a much better place right now. There's also part of me that knows he has a pretty large um, platform and, um, you know, sets, sets an example. And, and uh, I, I just don't, you know, and, and, and I, I've seen all sorts of reaction to this today. People saying, you know, there's more science that says masks don't matter. No, there's not. That's not what scientists are saying. It's not. That's just not. I'm, I'm, I'm about sick of that. And yes, there was a misfortunate, unfortunate comment by uh, Anthony Fauci early on when he was trying to protect uh, the, um, he was trying to state two points. One, that masks weren't the end all be all. And secondly, that they needed to preserve equipment for people and that everybody jumps on that. And, and there's also, you know, and I know there are things on the CDC website and we're all in a spot now where unfortunately we can't completely trust the CDC, which sucks, which is the first time in our lifetime. And that's, it's ridiculous. There's a lot of ridiculousness going on. And, uh, it, but I, so I didn't love it from that standpoint that, that he has a big platform and it just, it's not helpful, uh, that he's sort of a, a COVID denier, so to speak. Um, and I, and I just, you know, I, I'm always, it drives me nuts when people who have faith in God don't have faith in science. That's just a general, uh, it's somebody who's raised an Episcopalian and has friends and family on both sides of the aisle and all sorts of religions. That's always been one of the things that just bothered me. David Zandi's first question, how much of an issue would the football thing be under Delaney than Warren? How much does race play into it? I have no idea what that question even means. So is the question like because they're not respecting Kevin Warren because he's a black commissioner? Well I, that think that, well, I think that's the second part of the question. Yes, I think the first part of the question is just about if Delaney was still the commissioner, would there be as much blowback to the Big Ten? Uh, Delaney might have more control. Like, I mean, I think Delaney, they would have been better off with Delaney just because he, you know, from people who seem to understand the dynamic better than I did, he, he would have been able to say to people, hey, we're all, we're all going to be in one accord on this. I don't know if he would have communicated a whole lot better or not. And I don't know if, I, I, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, Kevin Warren's an impressive dude. I don't, I don't know that people don't respect him, but he certainly doesn't have the, the long-term relationships that Delaney did. Yeah, you could not compare Jim Delaney after 20-some years as commissioner to Kevin Warren his first few months on the job. I think it's just a, a baseless comparison here. And Jim Delaney never had to go through something like this. I mean, the closest thing that the, – the, the biggest things that he had to deal with and broker uh, throughout his tenure uh, between the president's and and the athletic directors were expansion and this is an expansion this is a lot different than that all right rick tweeters ask when talking program big 10 greats is there a more underappreciated guy than kaylin lucas msu was lucas torn Achilles away from the title in 2010 i don't i don't know like he, he certainly is he does get um overshadowed and i i probably he was one of the guys that i may have underappreciated on my rankings um I, I think what happens with Lucas is when he returned, he was part of that team that, you know, the, the, the 2010, 11 team that was sort of a disaster. And so that, that's also on his resume, but yeah, no, there's no question. I mean, you're talking about a guy who was a two time big 10 player of the year. Um, and just an incredible point guard on, uh, you know, yeah, no, uh, he probably does. And one of the other guys I think that you could probably throw in there, maybe, um, and it's from an injury standpoint would be Del Monroe. Um, I think, you know, that first part of his career, he was looking like he was going to be a, a, a big-time player, and then the injury got him, and, you know, that that maybe limited what some of those teams could have done. Carl asks, which MSU basketball player in recent memory have you been the most wrong about? I was convinced Aaron Harris would be the piece to put MSU over the top. That's a really good question from Carl. Um, you know, and, and, and Joshua Langford's uh, – story isn't done and he's turned into a really good player and he was having a great junior year. Um, and so I don't know what it'll be, but I thought his freshman impact was going to be bigger than it was. I really loved his game. Uh, and I thought he had some old man game and he was a good freshman. I just, I probably overhyped him, um, that more than he, you know, that he should have been and expected probably too much, uh, out of him. And so I, I would say that is Probably the one, you know, Foster Lawyer certainly I thought would uh, be, uh, would have more of an impact. I think a lot of us misread that and 
then saw pretty quickly that he was going to struggle. But coming out of high school, um, thought he would thought he would have more offensive success uh, than he has. All right, Spartan Mello with the last two questions here. Uh, going to hockey first. Coach Cole seems to be having consistently strong recruiting classes for hockey. How long do you think it will take for him to be competitive at the national level again? It's a good question because for a while last year they looked like they were just about on the cusp of the NCAA tournament, and then the, the year didn't uh, end as well. But they were competitive, and they were they, there have been strides each year. Uh, they brought in some – you're right on the recruits. Um, this year will be weird. I don't know if or when hockey is going to be played. Uh, but I, I definitely think the program's in the right direction. Like you can see tangible results, and he's you know he's not somebody who oversells it or undersells it. It's it, it's tough because they went through such a bad stretch and they missed on the Tom Anastas hire, and there were moments then where it was like, could this be happening? And so it's just been so long that people are running out of patience. But I, I do think that they, they are just about there where they should be consistently in the conversation for an NCAA tournament bid. All right, last question. We saw Iowa cut four sports. Is there talks about that happening at State? If so, what sports would be likely cut? You know, I've not heard that yet. Um, and uh, But I, I do think sports like the sw- swimming, which they don't have great facilities for, uh, wrestling, uh, sports like that would be the, the ones that would be um, most likely to, to be cut. And you got to keep in mind the numbers have to add up from a Title IX perspective. Um, you know, you know, Wisconsin, I believe, years ago, cut baseball. I don't think MSU would do that. I, but saying that, I mean, th- these are unprecedented times, and how they're going to come up with the money uh, to get through this, uh, I don't know. And uh, and some of that, some of those sports, though, don't save all that much money because they're not all that expensive. But they certainly don't bring a whole lot of money in. I, um, my hope is they they creatively figure out how to get through this well enough that they don't have to do that. Well, we'll keep our fingers crossed that MSU does not cut any sports. All right, that'll wrap up this week's podcast. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Spartan Speak, a production of the Lansing State Journal, Detroit Free Press, and the USA Today Network. If you enjoy this podcast and the work surrounding it, please consider subscribing. You can follow our coverage at lsj.com, freep.com, and on Twitter at Graham underscore couch, at Chris Solari, at Phil underscore friend, and at LSJ Green White. Thanks for listening. Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.